Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Gawkner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle, and I represent the productive middle and have on the productive right, John Dougal. Hey, great to be with you, productive middle. <laughs> productive left, Shireen Gorbani. Hello. Hi, listeners. Thankful you're still with us. I have fun sort of teasing the productive part because that's our aim in public policy is to help leaders govern from a place of agreement rather than disagreement, find common ground. And we get to do that on this show, even though we often uh, differ on ideas, but we are friends and civil and dignified in the way we speak. Speaking of dignified, I thought that President Biden's hosting of the Chinese president was a a really great move for our country. And John... The dictator? Yeah, the dictator. He called him a dictator. But but I will say that it was clear to me that President Biden has a relationship with this leader and used that relationship to try and find some more common ground. Things like reestablishing military communications. I don't think there's anything more important than that. Um, curbing a Chinese export of chemicals that are used to produce fentanyl. That's a big, big deal. And just really trying to get to a place where there's more diplomacy and less um, mean-spiritedness. John, your quick comments, and then you, Shereen. Yeah, I mean, I can see the benefit of of the diplomacy. I mean, first of all, you mentioned the military. When we're having military exercises and and Chinese planes and ships and others might be uh, coming really close, uh, it's concerning that you can't actually pick up the phone and call your counterparts in, in the other country, in China, and say, um, you know, we're, we're just doing an exercise. There's no threatening moves here. Um, it's concerning. I mean, decades ago, we put some things like that in place with Russia to try and avoid uh, people misunderstanding certain actions and uh, avoiding certain provocations. Uh, we don't want to go into war. And so I think trying to reestablish that, some of that is good. Um, I mm-hmm. think there's probably some naivete there. Um, I, I question to what extent uh, when it comes to fentanyl and the precursor drugs that, that are produced in China, to what extent the Chinese president can actually rein that in. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with folks sitting around a table talking about it. Yeah. Shireen, I thought when I was watching it, because um, I was watching this kind of as it went down, I was cooking dinner and they were waiting for the news conference to report, you know, out on the day's events. But I thought this is breakthrough stuff. And um, I worry that um, we're not seeing it as breakthrough, even though I think under these circumstances to have these two world leaders uh, talk together. My husband said to me that night, I actually am sleeping better tonight. Mm. So tell me, when you're thinking breakthrough, do you mean because we've been in a time of such sort of frozen and antagonistic relationship with China? Or kind of what's the bigger picture that's bringing some ease to your household around this? Yeah. Well, I've thought for a long time that China's economic struggles would bring them to the table. The two largest economies have so much to gain from working well together. And that appears to be true and has happened. And I think it's breakthrough because we were headed in such a negative direction. You know, the whole, the balloon flying over our country, shooting it down, Um, Xi Jinping meeting with Putin, you know, these frustrating moments. And I mean, I think uh, world peace is like the most important thing in life in many ways. And 
I think this was a step towards peace. Yeah, I do too. So I think engaged, um, I mean, I feel like we're in agreement around the notion that um, having those open lines of communication is critical to our national security, to our general um, well-being. And I think there's certainly an economic tie that's playing in there. I I would say the piece of it that just becomes difficult for me is, you know, when we're saying we've identified many things that the Chinese have done, but here in the United States, we're also seeing in Congress these, these, um, like the special committees that our Congress is putting together to look at what China is doing. So there's antagonism that's, I think, mounting on both sides. Having open lines of communication is absolutely the right first step, but it seems like there's a lot more that needs to be done here in the realm of kind of relationship building, but also holding our friends accountable when it comes to human rights violations and, um, you know, information technology violations all the way down the line. Mm-hmm. I get uh, excited when I see uh, someone like Secretary of State Blinken having this kind of success. He seems like a really reasonable guy to me. I would really be curious what our former governor, John Huntsman, would think about this meeting as a former ambassador to China. But my guess is he, he would give the administration high marks. I don't know. I'm sure as uh, you probably have his phone number. We should see if he'll do a special episode with us. <laughs> hey, uh, well, so, so Natalie, go let ahead. me ask you a yeah, question. Ahead, yeah, the, the part of this trip that caused me concern was uh, when Xi Jinping spoke to a bunch of uh, corporate CEOs, and he got like three standing ovations. Mm-hmm. And I have serious concerns because I believe he is a dictator. I mm-hmm. believe there's horrible human rights uh, atrocities that have taken place in China. Currently um, taking place. Currently taking place, have taken place in the past. And and standing ovations just seems to be uh, a bridge too far for me when mm-hmm. it comes to these. I get that they're concerned about which side their you know, bread is buttered on. They have corporate interests over there in China. But still, yeah. if we did some of the things that China did, they would be outraged here and, and voicing that concern. And yet in this forum, you know, standing ovations is very concerning to me because mm-hmm. they're basically approving of the actions he's done and taken. Yeah. I saw on Fareed Zakaria's um, GPS this Sunday, uh, he showed footage of the surveillance machine in China. And it really, I mean, I knew it was there. I've been to China. But when you see technology applied to all the cameras and all of the facial recognition and they know where you are, what car you're in, where you're going, and they're giving you a score according to your loyalty to the party. I mean, yeah, that's not deserving, John, of a uh, standing ovation. I think they got probably caught up in the moment and they shouldn't have. Well, one of the interesting dynamics here is is in the state of Utah, there's a big push in terms of concerns about privacy, looking to say, okay, for, for cameras or license plate readers or other things like that, how do we rein in and better limit um, the use of that data to surveil individuals here in Utah. Right, right. Hey, uh, Shireen, let's go to the uh, U.S. House of Representatives and uh, the Senate also that has passed this stopgap spending bill. Uh, Speaker Mike Johnson, boy, does he have his hands full. You know, he gets this passed, but then faces a mutiny from some of his extreme uh, members, and, and he adjourns the House until after the Thanksgiving holiday, almost like to get out of town, you know, before something bad happens. Yeah, that's right. So I think what will be interesting to see, I mean, this was ultimately a similar decision, is what ultimately led to the undoing of Kevin McCarthy's speakership. So are we going to see the same kind of dynamics boiling up again? And I guess I would just say that I, I would ask people to pay close attention to what we're actually seeing as the priorities out of this 
you know, House that's led by Republicans? Do we continue to see this kind of chaos or do we continue to see, uh, and I guess what I should say is, um, I read an interesting piece that said basically Democrats are the majority because we're the ones who are continuing to show up to make sure the government gets funded, that we don't head towards another expensive shutdown, that we're not s- sort of caught in this chaos loop. So I'm really mm-hmm. interested to see what's going to happen and if they're actually able to get their act together. But as the Republicans on the show, you tell me, what do you see happening here? <laughs> well, I, John, I'm I'm really focused on an election year to see what starts to Uh, fall into place. I thought it was interesting that there's a campaign out there right now to draft Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney to share a ticket and run for president, vice president. It looked to me like they were putting Romney at the top of that ticket just by the order of the logo, but I don't know. Um, But, you know, Shereen, I think it gets really interesting in an election year, as as you know that uh, the former President Trump is deeply controversial, and in my opinion, bad for our country. And then you've got Joe Biden, who may not be electable. And and how does this start to fall out? And, you know, I guess a Joe Manchin, Mitt Romney ticket sounds pretty good to me, John. Yeah, I'm sure it sounds good to you. I'm sure Mitt's probably going, been there, done that. Don't want to do that again. Um, and, and whether we like it or not, we're kind of in a two-party system right now. And I think you know, the third party, while I've, I've been very supportive of third parties, I think right now it probably plays more of a spoiler in this race, pulling away from both of the candidates, um, rather than really being a credible, hey, we're going to rise up and, and, and win an election. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and so, you know, it's interesting for folks to toy with it and talk about it. But at the end of the day, I think it does come down to, okay, which, which individuals and which folks from which parties are going to govern? Um, right. Speaker Johnson, yeah we kick the can down the road. We got a continuing resolution on the budget. I will be intrigued to see we've got two different deadlines uh, in terms of that, you know, and so rather than one massive deadline, we've got two different deadlines come, come winter, spring timeframe. So beginning of next year, I'll be interested to see how the house responds to that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, clearly he did something kind of like what Kevin McCarthy did. Uh, I think he has uh, his members, trust him a little better than they did Kevin. He doesn't quite have the personal baggage that's built up over the years. Um, but I had heard somebody on the news, I think they described it as uh, he came in in the uh, third overtime and there was no way, you know, just because he lost the game, there's no way he was going to win at that point. So mm-hmm. interesting metaphor. Shereen, in the one minute we have left, I'm interested to see how this third congressional district starts to shake down as we've got John Curtis uh, showing more and more leanings towards uh, an interest in running for the Romney Senate seat. I don't know. Do you have some thoughts about who might uh, fill that spot? Well, let's see if we can get Ben McAdams to consider it. I would love to see a strong Democrat okay. back in the race. Um, I, I, you know, this is an interesting district. I think that it's actually one of our more moderate districts um, mm-hmm. as far as the sort of overall split goes. I, I'm interested to hear. I think that there is a lot of opportunity, certainly, for a number of Republicans that may live in the district. I don't. It's not a requirement, but I do think people kind of prefer their candidate mm-hmm. to live there. Um, give me some names you're thinking about. I'll throw out some that okay. make John uncomfortable, but I throw out Deidre Henderson, our lieutenant governor, Mike Kennedy, a senator in our state, does a great job, and uh, John Dougal. John, have you ever thought about this? Putting you on the spot. Uh I've got various folks uh, encouraging me to think about it. I've spent more than a decade telling folks I don't want to waste my time in D.C. So, but I, I still have folks encouraging me to want to think about it. 
So, so stay tuned to both sides of the aisle. We'll keep you updated. Uh, Natalie Gawkner with Shireen Gorbani and John Dougal. Stay tuned for our second segment. Shireen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gawkner in the political center, and this is both sides of the aisle. Uh, Shireen, let's just reflect briefly on Rosalind Carter's passing. This is the... Uh, the wife of uh, former President Jimmy Carter. So Rosalind Carter is, I think, well known for her advocacy on a couple of issues that really um, sit close to my heart. And I think a lot to a lot of Utahns. Um, One is she worked tirelessly around the issue of mental health, really working to reduce stigma around mental health access. And another thing that she was known for um, championing, something that um, came out of a, a life experience she had early when I believe her father was diagnosed from cancer and then died, and she went on to do a lot of the raising of the of her siblings in her own household, was again just being a fierce and ferocious advocate for caregivers. And I just think that yeah. our world has really benefited from her, from the Carters generally. Um, but she... Um, One of the sayings that I would say sticks out for me is um, this. She said, do what you can to show that you care about others and you will make our world a better place. And I just have no doubt um, that that's certainly part of my memory of, you know, her legacy, but kind of thinking more broadly about the impact that the Carters have had and and just honestly how um, proud I am of their ongoing and continued service to this country. and, And so sad I am to see that she'd passed. Yeah, thanks for that, Shireen. I think we'll just leave it there. Unless John, what do what do what do we have? Almost almost eighty years of marriage. You know, something yeah. like seventy yeah. seventy five seventy seven years of marriage. That's just yeah. incredible. And to have them both in hospice together, and then uh, he outlives her. Yeah, yeah. So send our best to our former president. Um, well. Let's go to the uh, Utah Attorney General's office. We have talked about this probably five, six, seven weeks in a row. Everybody's gotten the, to know the name Our or Operation Underground Railroad. Um, John, I'll go to you first. But, you know, you have uh, women who are suing Tim Ballard now want Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes to freeze the um, Operation Underground Railroad's assets. Since the Attorney General has a conflict, they're asking for a deputy to do that. But even more importantly, you've got the threat of an audit to this office. You've got media trying to request uh, his public calendar. And I I think it's just a matter of time before something breaks here. When I say breaks, I just mean that maybe the attorney general says he's not running again. You know, something, because this is a lot of, of heat. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the news media, Salt Lake Tribune and others will drip, 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 continue to release little parts of the story as they, either as they get more information or as they want to just phase out their their narrative on this thing. Um, I don't know all the dynamics of of uh, OUR and freezing the assets there. You know, my experience there is usually that's something where you go into court, you make your argument why there's a risk and why assets need to be frozen. I'm not sure what role the attorney general really needs to play in this. I mean, it's my understanding that some are saying that he can dissolve certain nonprofits. Um, That's that's quite a bit of power. And I I don't know where OUR is incorporated, um, whether that's in Utah or elsewhere and stuff like that. And so it's it's one of those things. But... um, well, John, and you know, I just in terms say, of, go ahead. And then I can talk about legislative audit. Okay. Well, I was going to say, every time I hear the word audit, I'm always curious, is it you? Are we talking about your office? Or are we talking about a legislative process? Yeah. So this one is actually a request. Legislators making a request of their own auditors and stuff. And this is the type of thing. I think there were probably some that thought, oh, you know, this audit can take place in four to six weeks. And that's not really uh, the nature of audits. The legislative auditor general, I describe as my, my team has a much 
uh, bigger portfolio of what we do. We're kind of like the general infantry, and they're more like special forces where the legislature sees a problem and they parachute uh, their auditors into that. Um, they'll probably spend about two months uh, doing a risk assessment, trying to analyze and, and determine what they should look at. What they're going to do is a classic uh, performance audit, starting at the top of the organization, uh, looking down throughout to say where are the risks. Uh, the field work will take probably four to six months and then another few months to wrap up the audit. So we're talking best case six months for this, maybe a year, potentially even more than a year for this kind of audit. And what is is the cost associated with something like that? Because it seems like an incredible use of resources. And I'm also just really curious, like, do ultimately, if we find that organizations are in violation or they've done things wrong, are they responsible for that in any way? Do they have to pay for, I mean, are there any consequences? I generally, for those kind of performance audits, uh, I've never charged for those. I, I don't believe the Legislative Auditor General charges for those kind of audits. Um, we do charge for other financial statement audits and stuff like that. Um, it depends the number of people you put on it. You can assume that if you're throwing a staffer on there, you're, that's anywhere from, uh, for a, a year, anywhere from hundred to $200,000 per staffer. Um, and so you can kind of count the numbers of staffers and you can count the amount of time they're spending. And that's, that gives you a ballpark of what that audit costs. Um, one of the other dynamics is they're going to have to work through, uh, a lot of the complaints, uh, pretty much most of the complaints I've seen have been about either campaign or private activities, not about, uh, public funds or misuse of public funds. And so that's where, you know, what I've told folks in the past is it's my understanding. I have no authority to look at private funds. So when there were complaints about him going out to Nevada in regards to looking at some election issues regarding president Trump, um, and when you're saying we him, we're talking we, about Sean Reyes. This now. is Sean Reyes. We looked a few yeah. years ago, and there's just really quick. And it was like, okay, he did it on a weekend. No indication he used public funds. Therefore, my understanding is I had no authority to look at that. And so I think the legislative auditor general will also have to go through a similar kind of analysis to say, where do we have the authority and where don't we have the authority? Hey, uh, Shireen and John, let's let's uh, let's go up to the thirty thousand foot level and just kind of think about what we're seeing here. I mean, I worked on Capitol Hill in 2001 when Mark Shirtliff uh, became our attorney general. Uh, after Mark Shirtliff, it was John Swallow, and after John Swallow, Sean Reyes. And that's, um, that's a long time of having a very important office in the state uh, being under significant criticism. And um, I just, you know, raised the idea that uh, sometimes you need a reset, yeah. And uh, the way a reset would happen here it would be uh, our our good friend, Senator Dan McKay, throwing his hat in the ring to run for attorney general. He, I think Dan would be a terrific uh, candidate. But here's the one that's interesting, the former state GOP chair, uh, Derek Brown. And it's clear that Derek is very interested. I mean, my understanding is that he's got uh, Governor Herbert, it is, serving as his exploratory committee chair. For listeners that don't know Derek, uh, he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. I, I, served, was... I served with Derek in the House for several years. Okay. Derek is a, a wonderful yeah. public servant. So Yeah, he's been a chief of staff uh, or a state director for uh, you know different U.S. senators, including Mike Lee. And Bob Bennett. Okay. And uh, importantly, 
uh, Shireen, he's a musician, a gifted musician. Uh, I don't know if you knew that about Derek, but it's it's like something that I just so admire about him. Yeah, well, so I, while I do think there are some interesting names that you've just put forward, what I would say is I think that this is the product of when we have one party rule in a state. For many of these individuals, when we know they get out of their primary in the Republican Party in the state of Utah, they are basically uh, guaranteed a win. And when we have that kind of lack of accountability kind of in the larger context, I think that it can be um, a breeding ground for corruption. And so I would just ask people to think about what would happen if we started to consider maybe diversifying or making these elections not as close. Maybe people would feel more accountable um, to the voters and and conduct themselves with a higher sense of dignity when they're in these offices. And I I shouldn't say it's Mm -hmm. not an issue across all you know, John, I think you do a nice job carrying yourself. You do. I don't think that um, I'm not That's suggesting that I think right Governor there. Cox is corrupt, but I do think that we have some real problems when we have this kind of lack of uh, competitive races. Yeah. Uh, let's stay on Capitol Hill for a minute, uh, John. It looks like uh, that they're starting to come out with their revenue forecasts and tax revenues uh, are down $119 million. That's a big change. We've gone through uh, several years now of surprising revenue growth. Uh, it's going to be a much tighter uh, budget on Capitol Hill. Anything you think our listeners should know there, John? Well, I think uh, you're you're hearing concerns about the economy uh, nationwide. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago we talked about Salt Lake County and, and some belt tightening they were doing in terms of their budget. And so clearly we're seeing uh, either not the growth we've seen in the past or even a, a slight softening there. Um, and so that's something to to monitor is that uh, kind of a canary in the coal mine indicating there's broader economic concerns. Clearly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we didn't have the economic downturn during COVID. Uh, we've been running at a strong clip for many years. Some would say, you know, defying the odds, you know, both in Utah and somewhat nationwide in terms of economic strength. And and when you look not just in the U.S., not just in Utah, but nation or worldwide, uh, you're seeing various concerns, whether it's inflation, uh, you know, whatever other factors that are causing people concerns about the economy, which then translates over into revenue for government. Mm-hmm. Shireen, there have been some significant uh, tax cuts over the last couple of years. You know, the most recent income tax cut didn't show up in the withholding tables until July. And so that's a very recent thing for us, but they also exempted some uh, Social Security income. Yeah. And uh, then you go into a season where it's a little tighter and it's harder. It's interesting to me that... Uh, outgoing Speaker Brad Wilson exited just in the nick of time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it reminds so, me of Governor Herbert did this right before the Great Recession. Sorry, Governor Huntsman did this right before the Great Recession yeah. and left Governor Herbert to uh, take care of the, the downturn. The mess. Yeah. So and I, I just I'm glad that you brought that up because when this tax cut happened, you know, there was quite a bit of discourse that led us to understand that really it was the wealthiest that were going to benefit the most from this and not the people at the margins. So first of all, that's a tax policy that I'm not particularly interested in. But I am really curious about what it means for the long-term stability and investment in the state. We've talked many times about the needs to invest in housing, infrastructure, when we're thinking about the growth that we're experiencing, what it means to really continue to stay at the leading edge of a growing economy. I think that means having sound government. So making sure that's adequately and appropriately funded is crucial. So seeing kind of this um, uh, deep devotion that some Republicans tend to have in our state around tax cuts um, isn't always the best long-term investment investment for our state. So I would just ask as we're heading into this next session that people are really keeping their eye on, you know, what what are the ways that there are reasonable plans to address the shortfall? And then also, what are we going to do to make sure that we do have the kind of resources we need for the state we want to live in? 
Mm, I want to defend my good friend, uh, Governor Huntsman. Um, (laughs) Well, I I just want to point out we were in. You call him and get him on the show. (laughs) We were in. We were in. uh, special session cutting budgets in September 2008, and it wasn't until August of 2009 when he he left to go become uh, ambassador. So I just want to point out he was there for about a year of the economic downturn. It's that's totally fair, John, and good correction on me. Hey, uh, two more issues in the last uh, few minutes we have here. I want to talk about the University of Utah uh, getting the nod to host the 2024 presidential debate. Uh, this is huge news. Uh, October 9th at Kingsbury Hall, the eyes of the nation will be on this uh, campus. And uh, Shireen, you're you're smiling. Yeah. What do you like about this? Okay, I like everything about this. First of all, a lot of infrastructure, and, and I mean like actual like running of wires and um, changing of security protocols happened at Kingsbury Hall to, to host the vice presidential debate. Great worthwhile updates. It's really nice to know that that's going to get a second use coming up here in October, in our next October. Um, to host the debates again. I think the fact that we got a vice presidential debate was cool. Getting a presidential debate is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. John, your quick commentary on that. I think Shireen just wants us to do it every presidential election cycle, just like the Olympics. We're going to just host Bring it the fly every back. four I want years. The fly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you two, it's uh, Thanksgiving week uh, and uh, our President Biden pardoned the national turkeys. Uh, their names are Liberty and Bell. I wondered if quickly each of you could share something you're thankful for. Uh, Shereen? You know, I am thankful that we continue to meet and talk through even deep disagreement on this show. I think it's a model for others and I hope you can use it at your Thanksgiving table. I love it. John, what are you thankful for? Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for friendship. Nice. That's nice. You know, I'm going to go family. How about thankful- you? Well, I'm going to go thankful for my uh, my new grandson, uh, Jethro Gochner Sirago. It's a it's a joy in my life to have a little boy that I'm helping to nurture along and watch my daughter be a first time mom. So, Congrats, Grandma! Yeah, the Gochner yeah. household's uh, very thankful for that. And at the same time, we now have the oldest president in U.S. history. So lots going on. Hey. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our program. It's Natalie Gochner with Shereen Garbani and John Dougal. The program is produced by Anthony Scoma. Thanks, everybody, for your interest.